Brightest audience in the country, welcome to Bob and Yart Live. I'm the pastor of Denver Bible Church. Today we will continue to discuss our contribution in the area of economics. And I'm going to ask the question, here at Bob and Yart Live, little old Bob and Yart Live, did we kill a conservative national movement to restructure the federal tax system? Did we kill that? Because back in 2010, I debated the two national leaders of the fair tax movement. And so I want to talk about that, ask the question, if we killed the movement, and to their credit, two separate programs, two separate debates, informal debates on the radio. And I had 10 questions for both of them, 10 challenges. And I got to admit, they both were honest and they answered. And right off the bat, first question they admitted that their system was unjust. And I said, okay, well, since you conceded the debate and the Bible pastor won, why don't we just continue anyway, because I have nine more just like it. So I want to describe some of that for the purpose of illustrating that if you have a solid biblical foundation, not only can you avoid years of advocating for something that's inherently immoral, but you could also influence individuals and the circles around you, and we can't predict how far that influence may go, and indeed it could even affect eternity. So when Christians are fighting for things that are not fundamentally just or right or even important, then there's a terrible cost to that. When they're advocating things that are immoral, of course that's inherently unjust and dangerous, But when they're advocating for things that are, just say, pretty much a waste of time, then there's an opportunity cost. What could they have been doing with their time of actual value and worth, even to improving their relationship with their kids, for example, instead of being out crusading for something that's meaningless or worse, even destructive. So we'll get to that in my debates with a nationally known talk show host at the time, Neil Bortz, and the president of the Fair Tax Group, Ken Hoagland. But first, a little bit on current events. The left is making this push for a national minimum wage, right, from Bernie to AOC to Pocahontas. And today, the Costco CEO announced he's going to pay his employees a minimum of $16 an hour as a way of advocating for a national minimum wage increase. Most of the folks advocating for that right now, they seem to have coalesced around a $15 national minimum wage. And I despise making arguments such as this one. A national minimum wage is unreasonable because the cost of living in, say, San Jose is multiples of what it is in, say, Matawan, West Virginia. So there's no reasonable approach to a national minimum wage. Now, 
I hate those kinds of arguments because they obscure the truth. The fundamental principles of justice and economics, and they ignore Christ's teaching in Matthew chapter 20, which we could discern from the Ten Commandments, when Jesus said, is it not lawful, that is, is it not right for me to do with my money what I choose to do with it? If I want to pay some people a lot, other people a little, isn't that up to me to do what I choose with my money? And of course it is. Now, there are constraints. For example, if you've entered into a contract and you have promised to pay someone a certain rate, then in a way, it's not your money anymore. You have pledged it to someone else. And so there are constraints. But generally speaking, it is unjust. It's immoral for the government to impose a minimum wage. There was a old-time radio station in northern Indiana. I think it was outside of South Bend, Indiana. And they couldn't have had more than 500 people in their audience. It was a labor of love, and they were broadcasting hits from the 30s and 40s. So who's listening to that, right? But they did it because they loved it, and the people who ran it were all senior citizens And they were paying themselves like $4 an hour. And so what does the government do? They come in and shut it down because it's against the law to pay anyone $4 an hour. And all the other arguments ad nauseum that when you pretend that entry-level jobs need to be able to sustain a family and all, all that. I mean, arguments like that on paper, they may be valid as far as they go, but they obscure the truth that it is socialism for the government to decide how much you have to pay an employee. That's socialism. That's one of the scores of socialist policies that are implemented by our government. And we show that on our website, kgov.com socialism. We have a list. And so when Donald Trump said, for example, As long as I'm in charge, this country will never be a socialist country. It's like, well, too late. We are socialists. There are different degrees. And you might be able to define 100% socialist and 1% socialist or zero. And we're somewhere around 50% a socialist country. So when you have a Christian worldview that's Bible-based, a biblical Christian worldview— You are able to save yourself a lifetime of false starts and dead ends and advocating for things that are either useless or outright destructive. So economics, we have that listed. We have it as the 12th. We have our top 12 contributions listed on our about page, kgov.com slash about. And these are, of course, by our estimation— The same thing with our top accomplishments by our estimation, including the world's largest protest sign that we put up on the Rocky Mountains when Barack Obama came to Denver, DNC destroys unborn children. So top accomplishments and top contributions. And under economics, we have the links to our key resources. Some of them are debates, some are articles, some are radio programs. 
to kgov.com slash economics and to our definition of money, what is money? So fascinating and so very important. To our material pointing out that advocating for welfare or socialism or any socialist policies is itself sinful. That it's not sinful to take, say, an unemployment check. You or people who care about you have been paying into the system. It's not sinful to take a check from a socialist government, but it is sinful to advocate for a socialist government. Do you see the distinction? And the distinction is real and it's biblical. We also link to our resources on taxation. What is justifiable taxation? What is a good and proper tax rate? How about copyrights, intellectual property? For example, there are Christians who argue that copyrights are invalid. And I ask them, so you just take music and movie and software? You just pirate it? Oh, yeah, that's what I do. Then I ask them, well, how many songs do you have? Oh, I got about 2,000 songs. Oh, would you sell them? Would you sell them? Could it, would you sell them to me for 20 bucks? Put them on a flash drive? Would you sell your Pirates of the Caribbean movies that you didn't pay for and you downloaded that you didn't pay for and you pirate it? Would you sell those? And typically they, they balk at that point. They, they don't really want to answer, but they know they wouldn't sell it. But if it was theirs, if it was truly theirs, if it was rightly theirs, then you could sell it. If you buy a book... The author has it copyrighted, but you could sell it to somebody else. Now, you can't sell it if you also are keeping it. A book, like if you're making copies of the book, you can't sell the copies if the author has a copyright on the book. It's intellectual property. Our resources on economics include my interview with Jim Cramer, you know, his uh, cable TV show, Mad Money, and we discuss publicly traded stocks and the deeper value of those stocks, deeper than some multiple of the company's annual income or annual revenue. We talk about a boom and bust cycle and which is the bad one, which is the good one. We talk about human action and von Mises. Human action is a classic on economics. And what great resources we have, Doug McBurney and I talking through Von Mises' thousand-page book, really fabulous book, but he's an atheist, and therefore he makes some severe errors, including in some of the themes that he repeats throughout the book. We have a defense of our definition of money against an economist at the Adam Smith Institute. That's run by Forbes, and Tim Warstall is with the Adam Smith Institute. And actually, he agreed with our definition of money, which you can find at kgov.com slash money. But then he dissed it a little bit, and we had this powerful interaction that shows how our definition of money stands strong, even against minor criticisms. And then again, our efforts to teach through Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 20 and on unequal pay for equal work, and so forth. And the left saying that corporations 
only care about money, so they pay women less than men for equal work. And we think they don't know when they're contradicting themselves in the same sentence. I mean, if that were true, then why wouldn't corporations hire only women because they get the same work done for less money? They don't have to pay them as much. So, of course, all that is false, but it is beside the point. So with that, I'd like to hit some highlights, including did Bob Benyart Live kill the national fair tax movement a decade ago? But first, the telethon, we're up $1,000 from yesterday. We're at $26,650. Thank you so much, everyone. Our goal is $50,000. It's vitally important to reach. In fact, we just got a $500 matching offer from Kokomo, Indiana. So thank you so much for this $500 matching offer. That means if you can give $500... If you could give $500, then that will go as $1,000 toward our total. And at $26,650, we still have a long way to go, but the end, it's starting to get in sight. Not quite, really, but we're getting there. So please help if you possibly can. 1-800-8-N-Y-A-R-T. That's 1-800-836-9278. So the debate's on the national sales tax with its two leading proponents. And one month we debate Neil Bortz, who's the spokesperson, the national spokesperson for the fair tax. They want to do a national 22% sales tax and get rid of the income tax. So everything you buy, if you buy something for $100, there's an extra $22 tacked on, and that goes to the federal government. So that's the national sales tax. It was a big movement back 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and then it died. I think it died. At least I think it died because the homepage of this thing is dead for 10 years now. And that's about when we debated these two guys, Neil Bortz and Ken Hoagland, 10 years ago. So the first challenge I gave to both of them was, does the government have the right to force a businessman to become a tax collector. You know, millions of us who run businesses, we hate collecting taxes. We hate it with a passion. It is a vile duty that we hate. Big corporations, they couldn't care less, right? Because it's just part of the overhead that helps them keep the competition down. But there are millions of us who hate collecting sales tax and then remitting it to the government. We hate it. So I ask Ken Hoagland, the president of the Fair Tax Association, Ken, does the government have the right to force a businessman to become a tax collector? And to his credit, he said no. No. So... I said, well, thank you for conceding the whole debate. I mean, that means that you've lost and the Bible-thumping pastor won with his biblical Christian worldview. We won because you can't propose a just system of taxation based on an unjust collection system. You can't do it. I mean, you've just admitted that you're wrong. But 
because we've scheduled this time, why don't we go through nine more? Because I have nine more that are just as powerful as that. And I really do give both of them credit that they admitted that their system is unjust. And you know what their defense was? They said, well, we're doing it now anyway. So think of anything that's unjust, from murder to stealing to assault to whatever, and you advocate continue doing it because it's already being done. So you might not have your wits about you to realize that you just lost the debate, but they did. And there's a Colorado conservative who'd been active at that time for 30 years, used to listen to the show a lot. I think he liked half of it, hated half of it. So he calls me up after the show and he says, you know what's wrong with you, Bob? You think you're right on everything. And I ask him, I won't use his name, but I ask him, well, when do you make arguments when you think you're wrong? I mean, when do you do that? For me, I usually argue for things where I think I'm right. But maybe you argue for things that you think are wrong, but I don't do that. I think it's not fair to other people. But if you have a biblical worldview, you don't have to read two, three books, listen to speakers, and spend a couple years deciding whether you think a national sales tax is a good idea or a bad idea. All you have to do is, if you know what the Bible says about taxation— and about the most just and effective way to bring in money collectively for a centralized function, if you know that, then when someone comes up with an alternative idea, you can recognize errors in it because you're not coming from a position of uncertainty to start with. So it's so easy to see that the government does not have the right of conscription to force a businessman to become a tax collector. Secondly, the fair tax, it continues the confiscatory taxation. When they admit it, their own fair tax solution admits that it would bring in the same amount of revenue as the current oppressive tax system in America does. And again, Ken Hoagland's defense of that was, well, that's how much we're already taking in. Okay, well, you got a big problem there, Ken. Thirdly, I argued that a national sales tax entices millions of strangers. It's systematic that millions of strangers who briefly meet, it entices them to conspire together to defraud the government. And a just system of taxation does not systematically, almost as though it's by design, entice strangers to conspire to defraud the government. And that's what a national sales tax. You're going to sell your car for $10,000 to a stranger, and he's got to pay $2,200 to the government. You don't know each other. You meet on a Friday night, and the one guy says, well, can you sign here that I bought it for $800? And the other guy's like, well, what's in it for me? I'll give you another 100 Okay, I'll sign it. It's an impediment, especially to the startup of small businesses, especially for the poor or for those who are young or those with less business capability. Not only do they have to meet all the demands of the market in operating a competitive and private business, but now the government forces them for each transaction to calculate a sales tax, to collect it, to segregate those funds to resist the temptation to use that money in emergencies and then to remit the funds on time and to keep records of all that. You know how hard that is 
for a business to do, let alone a business operated by someone who has more than his fair share of challenges. You're putting up this impediment. And it goes on and on, the vastly greater transaction cost as compared to a flat income tax, the conflict of economic interest, because government then will obsessively encourage spending and borrowing rather than increased incomes, saving, and investment. You get that? If it's an income tax, then the government has a bias in increasing incomes, saving, and investment. Whereas if it's a sales tax, the government becomes obsessed with people spending and borrowing. And then the sales tax, they also excluded the poor. And as a result of that, people, millions of people can't really walk down the street with their heads held high. And they said, well, and we could eliminate the IRS. You don't need a sales tax to eliminate the IRS. You just eliminate the IRS. And it turns out it's the unfair tax. Paying a 22% sales tax on goods is grossly unfair when you compare the middle class to the poor and to the super wealthy, right? With the unfair burden falling on the middle class, as it generally does, the wealthy might spend 1% of their income a year, 1%. The middle class, a lot of it, they'll spend like 90% of their income. So the middle class is being taxed on 90% of their income and the wealthy on 1%, and the poor are excluded. And then our 10th argument is, look, God used the income tax. God used the flat income tax, and it is the most equitable and effective system of collecting revenue from an entire population to fund some centralized purpose. God did it, it's awesome, and we advocate a flat income tax of 5% or less, and that's in our proposed constitution at kgov.com slash constitution. Let's see, we have our definition of money, we have our resources on calculating wealth, we have a net worth worksheet where you can calculate your wealth, and so interesting, we compare a billionaire's family's wealth with a homeschool family's wealth. And so it has just five columns. And the five columns and the rows, you could put Jeffrey Preston Bezos, William Henry Gates III, Warren Edward Buffett, or a typical homeschool family, right? You could have four rows just to compare. And so the five columns then, the first is you have over $50 billion in assets, yes or no? So the first three, yes. Homeschool family, no. The second column is you have less than $1 million in assets. First three, yes. The homeschool family, no. Now, a lot of homeschool families do, but this typical one I'm imagining, no. The third column, the number of parents proclaiming faith in Christ. So we've got for Jeff Bezos, zero, Bill Gates, zero, Warren Buffett, zero, and your homeschool family, two. Wow, two parents professing faith in Christ. And the fourth column is number of kids proclaiming faith in Christ. Bezos, zero, Gates, zero, Buffett, zero. Now, between those three billionaires, they have 10 children. They have 10 kids. 
And the homeschool family in this example, say, say they have five kids and say two are under the age of five. So number of kids proclaiming faith in Christ for Bezos, Gates, and Buffett, zero, zero, zero. For the homeschool family, three. And the fifth and last column is, are they inheriting cattle on a thousand hills? Inheriting cattle on a thousand hills. And it's no, no, no. And the homeschool family, yes. Okay, so the multipliers. The cattle on a thousand hilltops equate that to approximately $1 billion, all right? A typical herd on a hilltop worth a million, thousand hills, a billion dollars. Eternal life from faith in Christ, what is that worth? Well, that'd have to be somewhere around greater than infinite dollars. That's about what it's worth. So the wealthiest of these four families is the homeschool family. Their net worth is greater than one billion, that's the cattle on a thousand hills, plus five times infinite dollars. All right. The difference in net worth between them and any of these billionaire families is that the billionaire's family has infinitely less wealth. Now, there is some fine print on this. For the recorded deed to the livestock, see Psalm 50, verse 10, right? That's where my father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. For the legal relationship to the owner, see John chapter 1, verse 12, where to many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So beautiful. For the promissory note, the inheritance, see Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, that we have received the promise of eternal inheritance. So your net worth is everything you own of significance minus your debts. Your assets include cash and investments, your home, other real estate, cars, and anything else of value. The worksheet is right on, and we can pray for these billionaires and for their combined 10 children that each one might overcome the crushing worldly burden of their parents' wealth and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for eternal life. So when you're thinking through economics, of course we tend to focus on the monetary value of assets. But without biblical principles, you can't even do economics. Economics as praxeology, the science of human action, Von Mises himself, Ludwig von Mises, points out in his book that if a government practices interventionism, if they intervene and decide what property is worth, what employment is worth, what money is worth, whatever, fill in the blank, to the extent that the government is an interventionist government, To that extent, you can't even make a reliable economic calculation. In Venezuela, if there's a resort on the beach and it's worth $10 million 20 years ago, and you have the opportunity right now to buy it for $500,000, would you buy it? How could you even know if you should buy it? You can't know with the government being an interventionist government. 
it could be just as likely to increase in value as to become worth nothing, even to be confiscated by the government. So when you have a biblical worldview, boy, are you able to be an asset to those around you and influence people for good and not evil. Hey, our matching offer $500, please help with that or whatever you can, 800-8-N-YARDS and kgov.com. Continuing now with our bonus segment, because this is February 2021, our telethon month, and we're doing this not only each show with a bonus segment after the half-hour broadcast program ends, but we're also adding an additional program each week on Thursday, when we normally air Theology Thursday, we're also airing a Bob and Yurt Live program. And today being Thursday, normally we only air a Theology Thursday program from a sermon or a Bible study that I've had the honor of presenting. But today is the last of our special Thursday Bob and Yurt Live broadcast because of the telethon. Now, during the broadcast portion of today's show, I was wrestling with whether or not to share something that came into our studio today, but I'll tell it to you guys who are listening on the internet. And it's so exciting. Out of British Columbia, Canada, there's a men's group there, Christian men's group. And once a year, they raise funds for some important project. And they called to say this year, the funds they raise are going to go to the Bob and Yurt Live Telethon. How humbling is that? And so they said, and I'm purposely not giving the name of any of the guys that we've had the honor of talking with today, but they said they don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, but you could expect about $10,000. $10,000. So that means that if we can calculate that in, we're approaching now $37,000. I said before we're at $26,650. Another $100 came in during the show. So that's $26,750. Plus, we could look forward to somewhere in the neighborhood of $10,000, or they said, or perhaps significantly more. So that's, I'd say that. We could think in our minds that we're up to about 37000 if that happens, and they were very confident. So you don't want to count your chickens before they're hatched, but this is so very exciting, and it makes it that much more likely that we're going to hit our goal of $50,000. So in this bonus segment, I want to talk about our definition of money. What is money? But I want to do it in a broader perspective because on that page, what is money? kgov.com slash money. People have told us they found it when they Googled what is the best definition of money. At the bottom of that short article, we have a definitions section where we present select BEL definitions of words And there are words that, it's so easy, just Google definition of time, definition of conservative, definition of miracle, definition of terrorism, whatever, even definition of animal, uh, 
the etymology of the word amen, and so on, like definition of money. So we've created this resource because there are common terms that are used that are not necessarily used as precisely as they should be, and thereby becoming more effective as we communicate with one another. There's less room for confusion, for misunderstanding. So I want to get to that, but before I do, I want to share with you an objection that this economist at the Adam Smith Institute put forward against Bob and Your Lives' definition of money. Okay, he, he quoted our definition of money, which I'm, I don't want to share with you right now. And he said, well, that's certainly one of the things that money is. And fiat money, fiat money, that's where the government or a bank brings money into existence by fiat simply by declaring or by stating, okay, here's a million dollars. Sounds scary, doesn't it? And he said this, he said, fiat money is indeed an efficient manager of a monetary system, but it still depends upon the suspension of disbelief for it to work. Now, the suspension of disbelief, that's a common term in entertainment. You go to see a Broadway play, you see a movie, a TV show, and there are no end of absurdities why the story cannot be real, but you suspend your disbelief in order to enjoy the presentation. You want to enjoy the movie. And if at every moment you are reminding yourself for all the reasons that none of this is real, it wouldn't be as enjoyable. So he's saying when you get a Federal Reserve note, let's say it's a $50 bill, $100 bill, or Andrew Jackson, he's on the $20 bill. There's a movement today, pretty good-sized movement to get Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. I love that because she was a Christian abolitionist, a slave who ran away to freedom and then helped to free scores of other slaves. What a hero, Harriet Tubman. And so, yeah, when you look at a Federal Reserve note, you realize it's not backed by gold. And so this economist at Forbes is saying, well, Bob, there's a, there is a problem with this in that it still depends on the suspension of disbelief for the system to work. So I replied to Tim Warstall that using fiat currency no more involves suspension of disbelief than does purchasing a portrait for more than the cost of the canvas and paint. So you go to an art gallery, you go to an auction, and it has been announced around the world because they have a Monet or a Picasso for sale. And you're there and you're figuring out, okay, the canvas, that costs, the good quality canvas costs about $13. And the pigments and the paints, so you cap your bidding plan at $20. That's, that's all you're going to offer. So the suspension of disbelief is too easily thrown at a monetary system 
in a way that actually doesn't provide insight, but just furthers confusion. Before we get to some of our select definitions, I'd like to share with you guys what we propose as the best definition of money. And it's a little bit complicated. Money's a little bit complicated. But back in the 1990s at Bob and Yurt Live, I made a claim that's on our errata page, our errors page, kgov.com slash errors, all the biggest errors that we're aware of that we have made over the last 30 years are listed on that page. And one of them is the gold standard. I claimed wrongly, as I understand now, that justice required a return to the gold standard whereby currency would be backed by reserves of precious metals. Now, a few decades after 1882, in America, the bearer of a $20 bill, that is, it was a gold certificate, could return it to a bank and receive an amount of gold approximating that value. That's interesting, right? You bring your money into the bank and you could ask for gold. After studying and thinking about money for many years, interacting with one of the world's leading consultants on monetary policy, reading economic texts such as Ludwig von Mises' Theory of Money and Credit, reflecting on the Bible, I came to the position that I hold today, that whereas metals can be used as money, money itself is not gold or silver. That is not only a pedantic or even a juvenile view of money, it is a very costly error. To argue that only gold and silver can be money, because then it adds an enormous amount of doubt and fear and hatred into the general public regarding money itself, but also because to the extent that that idea is implemented in our modern times, it is a horrific waste of resources. Another common definition of money is insufficient, that it is simply a medium of exchange. But rather, here's what money is. It's more like an IOU, but it is a transferable IOU. And unless an IOU is fulfilled, it represents an incomplete transaction. Think about that. When there's an IOU, unless it's fulfilled, it represents an incomplete transaction. Therefore, we consider the most accurate definition of money to be money is the accounting of transferable, incomplete transactions. That's what money is. And what's more, as those transactions are completed, the actual money based on those transactions disappears. And that is the idea behind fractional banking, which is actually brilliant. I realize somebody thinking about the telethon could say, well, then, Bob, you're just asking people for the accounting of their transferable incomplete transactions. And yeah, that is actually true. 
Because let's say you have $1,000 in your wallet or your in your account. That represents incomplete transactions whereby other people will now provide goods or services for that IOU, for that transferable IOU. So it's incomplete in that people will do things for you toward completing the transaction. But then it's transferable they get the IOU, and it still is incomplete. Now, how would it ever become complete? We'll talk about that. Money is not a thing. That is, it's not a physical thing. Money is a real thing that is not made of matter. You could go to our website, kgov.com physical, for our list of things, real things, that are not physical. You'll see on the list money, and you'll understand how it is that money is not a physical thing if you listen to that series and what I'm about to say. Money is not a thing. It is an accounting system. Back when technology didn't exist to support more effective and lower-cost accounting procedures, the ancient Israelites and other cultures reasonably implemented metal-based money. No one can create gold, right? Well, at least not until recently in the Proton 21 lab experiments. But generally speaking, no one can create gold. It was difficult, therefore, to counterfeit money without the theft being detected, like by biting a coin or weighing it, seeing how much water it displaced, And you realize this is fake gold. This is not real gold, or you've mixed in tin with the gold or whatever. Later, by the time of Christ, a businessman could cash a check in Ephesus. Think about this. This is real history. A businessman could cash a check in Ephesus with the funds drawn on his bank in Rome, which was a thousand miles away. Human beings are brilliant. And the further back in time you go, the more brilliant they were. We have more knowledge, but that's relatively insignificant compared to the fundamental brilliance. You can see that on our website, kgov.com genius. But later still, after our businessman in Ephesus, the printing press enabled the widespread convenience of paper currency. Today, the internet enables the convenience of online transactions, while all forms of money come with risk of fraud, right? These modern monetary conveniences provide extraordinary benefit to billions of people, billions of people. So because we're about out of time, I'm just going to share a couple things from our article there. It's a short article at kgov.com slash money. And first, explain how money is properly created by fiat. Now, what makes an economy function is God's command for men to serve one another. That's what makes an economy function as men serve one another. If one man is alone for life on a deserted island, there could be no economy. Right? Even money itself would become meaningless, for money must be transferable. If it's not transferable, it's not money. It's useless for that function. 
if two or more people were shipwrecked on that island and they refused to work with one another and they stayed isolated, they would not build an economy. On the other hand, as they attempted to survive or even thrive, if they did begin providing goods and services to one another, then they would gradually build an economy. An economy grows as human beings increasingly serve one another. And an economy will grow most quickly if these men are free, for the Bible says that liberty provides the opportunity to serve one another. However, if they began to keep to themselves and stop trading goods and services, their economy would sputter out and die. And if all economic cooperation ceased permanently, any money that each had collected would lose its monetary value. So an economy thrives when men serve one another. If these shipwrecked men washed ashore on this deserted island and it had no gold, still they actually would create money by fiat as they entered into agreements that created something like transferable IOUs. So in any nation, every time someone buys a car or a home on credit, they thereby commit themselves to some years of hard work or at least to the obligation to pay off the loan. And that process, by doing that, the commitment itself actually brings more money into existence. And that's what leads economists to defend fractional banking. Fractional banking is justifiable. Understanding how money actually functions justifies the modern world's fractional banking system, whereby lenders bring money into existence when making loans, and they expunge the principal as it is repaid. It's all astounding. Check it out at kgov.com money. Think about what happens when a 19-year-old is sick and tired of what he's been doing in his house and he wants to buy a new car. And so the commitment he makes then to be able to buy that car and the value it adds to the community. So kgov.com slash money and our matching fund, $500. Please help out with that. May God bless you.